Tonight, I think what I want to start with is just um, bringing to our hearts and minds, think about your desires. Just take a moment and let's just contemplate. Let's just turn inward here for just a moment. Think about your desires. Like we all experience this, this vast spectrum of desires. And most of those desires that we think about, they're inconsequential. They don't really matter. So like for me, tomorrow, if I get up and I go surfing tomorrow, I desire some good waves. Not really a big deal. Tonight, right now, I'm feeling kind of hungry. I desire a delicious burrito from Taco Stand. It's not going to really transform my heart or change the world. That desire really doesn't have much consequence. But some of our desires are of greater consequence. And the longer those desires of greater consequence, the longer those desires go unmet, the greater our desperation becomes. So we can have desires that make us feel like we're going crazy. We can have desires that are of such great consequence that if they go unmet, it makes our circumstance literally dire. So I think of the couple that's been trying to have a baby month after month, year after year. And they're, they're really beginning to experience desperation. There's really real pain there. Or I think of the immigrant people that are trying to get into this country even right now. And they're desperate. They are desperate to get in here to try to make a life for themselves, to try to get ahead. I think about families this season right now that we're close with who are literally begging God that the chemotherapy is going to heal their dad and that their dad won't have to go be with Jesus too soon. So this is where we meet Hannah. And I want you to understand who she was and the circumstances that she was in. Hannah had a dire circumstance. She had this unfulfilled desire and she had become desperate. So first of all, with Hannah, we know that she was one of two wives And that in and of itself was a desperate situation. The Bible continually portrays polygamy as wrong, as not a good idea, as damaging to human souls. So we start seeing Hannah already in a circumstance where she desires to love her husband and be loved by her husband, but there's this other woman involved in the relationship. Now, her husband, Elkanah, did love her, and the story highlights that, but the story also highlights that Hannah had not yet had any children. And so, of course, in our day, infertility is a source of great pain. But in Hannah's day, this was literally the equivalent of death for women. Now, remember, we're reading ancient texts here. We're reading from an ancient culture. Just try to put yourself in the mind frame of these people. For this woman, her calling in life, her meaning, her value would have been based on her ability to provide children for her family, for her welfare, for her well-being. All of these things were tied up in her being able to have children. And the text highlights that she was barren. Her society literally would have considered her cursed by God. People watching her would have felt bad for her or they would have thought she's done something wrong and she's cursed by God rather than blessed by God. And then to add salt to the wound, There was this other wife, Penaniah. She was this baby-producing powerhouse. It's like Elkanah would sneeze and Peniah would get pregnant. And Peniah was provoking Hannah continually. Do you have this person that you follow on Instagram? You unfollow them about every three weeks because, you know, Peniah, she's 
pregnant again. There she is. She's sure to tag Hannah in all of her stories like, oh my gosh, I'm pregnant again. So difficult. And her little belly bump with all of her kids. Hannah, look what I, and just provoking her. Can, I, it's awful. It's absolutely awful. And so what Hannah so badly wanted was actually being given over to this woman that was sleeping with her husband in her own home. And what she needed to be socially respectable and to have a sense of value was being denied her over and over. And what she actually knew was her calling, like what she believed and knew God had created her to do was not coming to pass. And yet, in this dire circumstance, in this place of absolute desperation, where it looked like this woman was cursed by God, God was actually working very profoundly in his upside-down, unseen, backwards ways. God was present and had come to Hannah in her desperation. God had met with her. God had not abandoned her. God had not cursed her before any of her desires had actually been met. Now, before we explore that, that idea of of God coming to us in our desperation, I want to develop a little bit more on our desires. Let's talk just for a moment about desires. And keep in mind right now, what desires of consequence do you have this Christmas season so that you fit into this text, so that it actually shapes us tonight? God actually works his will in us and in the world through our desires. I think as Christians, sometimes we've been trained to deny our desires, pick up our cross and carry our crosses. And that's true. But on the other hand, God gives us certain desires and his designs come through our desires. And he works in the world through what we desire, the things we want to do, God gives to us to do, the things we want to have, the way we want to make an impact. All these things come from our Father. The problem with desire is that we have godly desires that are given to us by God himself, but we also have desires that are completely deformed. They're completely disordered. And they are actually, we have desires that are actually against God and against his will due to the sin that we have in our souls. And so between the two poles of deformed sinful desire and good holy desire is this spectrum of mixed desires. We have good desires that are tainted with ungodly motivation. And so all of us can do the right thing, but for the totally wrong reasons. We also can do categorically wrong things, but for good reasons. Just track with me on this. Think about Robin Hood. Robin Hood's heart for caring for the poor was absolutely godly, but he had to break one of the Ten Commandments to do what God had put on his heart to do. So we can do right things for wrong reasons. We can do wrong things for right reasons. We are this mixed bag of good and bad desire, godly and unholy desire. Desire is very, very complicated, and yet... God knows how to sort through all of that. God knows how to work in the midst of all of it. God is always guiding and directing. God is always working and shaping in all of his humans, 
He moves all the pieces of the puzzle together to make this beautiful picture of glory to his name and his work and will being done in the world through this messed up, complicated spectrum of godly desires, ungodly desires. He's there in all of that. And this process for you and I tonight as Christians, as apprentices of Jesus, it can be horrifically confusing. We can have desires that are so strong that will never be fulfilled. And it can be crushing for some. We can have a lifelong ache that will never be met, and it can be completely overwhelming. We can go through seasons where we know what we want, aligns with the Bible, and God just says flat out, no. We can go through seasons where, whoa, I didn't even want that. And God just gives you a desire that you didn't even know you wanted because all of a sudden you have something in front of you that you never even knew you wanted. (laughs) The process of God working in our desires, it's a lifelong work, and it always works itself out in a community of souls that are knit together by God. And it can be terribly confusing because God's work in our desires and the way that God works in the world through them, we do not have the capacity or the ability to understand it all. We're just too small. God's ways, as Isaiah said, are not our ways. So his response to our desires, even our most desperate and godly desires, I would say is not always, but I would say almost always is not what we would expect. We don't get to write the blueprint for God, in other words. We don't write out the map and say, here's the course of my life, stamp Jesus' name on it, bless it, yes and amen, and there it goes. It never works that way, unless it's just me. (laughs) It's never worked that way for me. We many times are not able to see God in the midst of our unmet desires, what feels like no, what feels like brokenness, what feels like loss. We just can't see him. We're just too overwhelmed with the circumstances. There are going to be, as we apprentice ourselves to Jesus, so many times in life where we're like, I do not understand this response, God. This does not make any sense to me. I prayed. I asked. I obeyed. We prayed. We asked. We obeyed. You are good. You are in control. And yet this world is so broken and so wicked and so many terrible things are happening. We, we cannot understand that. And we will certainly go through extended seasons where it feels like he just does not hear us or maybe he's abandoned us. But it is there. It is there in those seasons, as we learn from Hannah, that God has come to us already in the midst of all of the confusion. He's there working. And really the process of Christianity and growing in Christianity is allowing our eyes to be opened by the Holy Spirit to see and sense that God is in the denials, God is in the delays, and God is in the deliverance, actually in the fulfillment of our desires. That's three responses that God has to our desires. Let's look at these three responses that we see God responded to Hannah and her desires with. Number one, God comes to us, even when we're desperate, in our, in our most desperate place, God comes to us in the denial of our desire. God is God because he can and does say no. As Western American 
Christians, trained by a fast food, high-speed internet culture, this may be one of the hardest pills it is for me, certainly, to swallow. Our God is God because he can and he does say no. And I, I would encourage you to deeply consider, if you serve a God who has never said no to you, I wouldn't be certain that that's actually the God of the Bible. That may just be a God of your own imagination. There's two primary reasons that God will just flat out say no to us. Number one, the desire we have is sinful and it's against his will, period. And number two, our desire isn't actually good for our highest flourishing from his perspective. That second reason is the one where it gets really confusing. Have super godly desires. Seems like it would bring the greatest flourishing if that desire was met and he just flat out says no. So the first reason is, is obvious. God will always say no to our desires that are disordered. And we all, every single human on this planet, all Christians, we all are this mixed bag of ordered and disordered desires. And it can be extremely confusing. But he will never say yes to a desire that is denying who he is and who he has made us to be. This isn't because... God does not want us to be fulfilled or satisfied. It is actually because our broken desires, our desires that are malformed by sin and by the inward turn and by the deceptions of this enemy called Satan, these malformed desires, when we gain them, they literally kill us. They literally kill us. So going clear back to the Garden of Eden, God said, no, don't. You can't do this. You can't have this in reference to something that looked absolutely desirable. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God warned Adam and Eve that though that fruit looked so good to have, to eat, to eat it would bring death. It would literally bring death. And so God's denial towards Adam and Eve was for their flourishing, which is that second reason why he will deny our desires in seasons. We can have desires that aren't sinful, but they are certainly not the best thing for us. We have to always remember we can't see the whole picture. And so this God that we serve, he sees a trillion sons and knows them all by name, set them in place. He sees all of their lifespans from the Big Bang all the way back to when this whole thing just spreads out and melts out and is finally done, 80 quibajillion years from now. He sees it all in a moment. While we see our brief 80 years, I just want to put into perspective how silly it seems to come with our little map of our life to this God and say, here's what I think the next 80 years should look like. God actually sees every interconnected piece he sees all, how all the trillion suns form the universe, but he sees how every decision and every desire, both malformed and holy, he sees how every desire and every decision that every human makes throughout all the span, he sees how it all interweaves into this massive, complex thing called creation and glory to his name and human flourishing. He sees all of how it unfolds throughout history. 
And what we are certain, we are so certain would bring our highest flourishing and such good to the world, and we know it's godly, somehow in God's mysterious perspective, he can see that this would actually possibly be detrimental to our souls or maybe not the best thing for our souls. And it may not fulfill his greater purposes that he wants to accomplish through us in the world by denying us that desire. That's where real faith happens, my friends, my dear loved ones. That's where faith rubber hits the road. You have a desire that you know he's denying. You know he's going to deny it. Can we stop and still say, I trust you. You're good. I will follow you. And in American, affluent, cynical, Western culture, this is where a lot of Christians crumble under the weight of the confusion. And many are saying, I can't do this. I can't do this. The psalmist says, for the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those whose walk is blameless. And so when God says no to something, that we know is actually a good and godly desire, he is doing so because in his infinite understanding, it may not be what will bring our highest flourishing. And we have to continually return to that place where we recognize we are children and we trust our Father. He does want to give good upon good to us. And he actually proved that in the giving of his Son for our sin. But if God says no, it is for our good. And here's the, real, here's the real ripper for tonight's teaching in this point. He is present in the denial. He's intimate with us in saying no. This is hard for us to get our heads around. When our earthly fathers said no to us, they had to be present. They were close. So like with my kids, I have always been just as for them just as in love with them, just as protective of them when I've said, no more candy, no more. They can't understand. My kids never really did the roll on the floor fit thing, but they definitely were able to let me know they were upset about me saying no more candy. And I was present and loving and protective of them and intimate with them in saying no just as much as when I surprised them and say, ice cream, let's go. Both of those Denial of the desire and fulfillment of a desire are places where our Father is intimate with us and close to us. And that brings us to the second response. Sometimes when we are experiencing the denial of our desire, like what happened with Hannah, all we are actually experiencing is a delay. If we would just hold out for another week, another month, if we would just continue on pressing into prayer, that denial we would discover was a long delay. God comes to us in delaying the fulfillment of our desires. And this was certainly the case with righteous Hannah. God had closed her womb. The text literally says God had closed her womb. But it wasn't going to be that way all the way to her grave. Because God does this vital, important work in us through the delays of our desires. He develops these desires. He prepares us. Actually, in times of delay, he prepares us to accomplish his will in the world through the delay time. And so with each passing year, what was happening to Hannah was her prayers were being intensified, and her heart was every prayer, somehow she moved just a little incrementally, just this tiny, tiny little step further forward 
and surrendering more to God. With each passing month, I just envisioned myself watching her pray in her soul, pouring herself out month, month, year, year. And with every prayer and every moment of it feels like a denial, somehow Hannah, instead of saying, fine, I'm done, I'm leaving, I'm out, I'm not going to do this anymore, somehow Hannah was incrementally saying, okay, I surrender more then. I, I trust you now. I trust you're my father. I trust that you're good. I trust that I can walk with you. I trust that you saying no to me is only for my flourishing. And somehow that delay was developing in her this depth of trust and this depth of surrender. And she was learning to rely not on her own understanding, but on the wisdom of God in either answering her prayers and her desire or not answering her prayers. And I can tell you, I am certain Hannah had to have times where she just wanted to give up. She had to have been tempted to give herself over to cynicism and doubt. She may have even had times where she would just say, okay, I've surrendered it. If I never have a child, wonderful. But it was really just an act of resignation. But there was deep hurt and battle there. There had to have been times of just full-on rage and tears. There had to have been time of real lament like what we see all over the Psalms. And yet, through that time of delay, this desire for a baby, this this desire to have cultural value in the eyes of her peers, this desire for her calling to come to fruition, it just wouldn't leave her. Try as she may to rid herself of this desire so she would continually find herself praying again and again, please God, grant me a child. And what God was doing was he was developing her desire and he was increasing the intensity of it. And this is the counterintuitive process that God had Hannah in and he has us in. What felt like continual denial to her was actually keeping her running to God with raw honesty and greater longing. Do you see that? What felt like denial was actually God bringing Hannah back to himself over and over and over and over and over with an intensity of prayer that cast off all the burdens of what culture thought of her cast off all the provision that Elkanah was trying to provide for her. What what was happening there was there was this intimacy that was being created. There was a space for intimacy being created by the delay. And so Hannah's society looked at this poor woman and said, she's cursed by God. But what she actually was doing was drawing closer to him. And Paniah, with her Instagram feed and her tagging Hannah in every one of her stories, was trying to provoke her. But Hannah would turn from Paniah's provoking voice, unfollow, get off social media, and go to prayer. (laughs) Her husband, Elkanah, very interesting. Elkanah pitied her. Elkanah looked at her and said, I feel so bad for you, but I want you to know that I love you, so I'm going to fix your pain by providing for you. I know you haven't had any kids, but here's an extra ribeye steak because I'm giving you double portion. Back in that day, that would have been a big deal. In our day, it would have been like, here's some flowers and a gift card to Nordstrom's and go buy yourself some stuff. And I, I just want you to know that I love you so much, even though you haven't. He was trying to provide for her and pitying her because the pain was obviously so deep. And what Elkanah could not understand was that the unmet desire was producing this pursuit in Hannah after God that actually exceeded any worldly thing that he could give her. It was the desire that was producing this pursuit after God 
which was greater and more good than anything that this world could have afforded her. And then even the spiritual authority of her day, this priest, Eli, he's quite a character. I wish we could talk about him more. He attributed, this man was so insensitive. He was so spiritually muted. He was so just, he had honestly given up. That when Hannah is in the temple praying, he attributes her intensity of prayer to drunkenness. He says, woman, put your wine away from you. Why are you talking to yourself there in the church? When in fact, what Hannah was doing was she was joining with God's most powerful saints who through all of their waiting and suffering had learned to, Psalm 62, 8, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him. And so tonight, this Christmas season, you need to know that whatever he feels like he's denying you, it may be a full denial. I'm just going to be honest. We just got to stomach that. It may be a good father saying no. And it may be a good father saying, you got to wait. I'm going to produce a space and a house of prayerful intimacy with you. And the people watching you may say, oh, I feel bad. And your friends around you may say, you know, it's not that bad. Let me provide for you this. Let me provide for you that. And the priests and the pastors may say, you got to believe it to receive it. Pray more. It's coming. Don't worry about it. And all the while, you and your tears and your constant pursuit of God are so close to him. You are closer to him than the one who is Instagrammed out with a thousand kids. This is the backwards way of Christianity, you guys. It's, it's so foreign to us. It's so upside down. It's so hard for us to get our heads around. But I'm telling you, this way of looking and receiving and walking in this world is the only thing that will survive the pain of this world. And it is what the 38,000 students over there are aching for. It's what the 1.2 million people within city limits of San Diego are begging for. They are begging for a way to understand pain and desire unmet. And so we as apprentices of Jesus must learn to hear and see our Father in the denials and rejoice in the seasons of delay. Because with Hannah we learn that God is actually expanding and transforming these desires. He's broadening the scope of what he's doing. And he's shaping, he's shaping, what he was doing with Hannah was he was not only shaping the answer to her prayers to most deeply satisfy her personally, he was also working in the world through the long delay to bring about his purposes. And this is the third way that I want to talk about, and then we'll get ready to come to communion. This is the third way that God comes to us in our desperation. He actually fulfills our desires. He actually just like shows up and fulfills them. God comes to us by fulfilling our desires in our desperation. So what had happened with Hannah is through the delay time, God had developed her desire and transformed her heart. And this is what we need to hear. He had transformed her heart of desperation into a heart of surrender. Desperation will always lead to surrender. That's the end game for every one of us. A pastor mentor of mine once told me that pastoring, the whole job of pastoring is preparing people to die well. I know that sounds so macabre here at Advent season. But think with me about this. 
What we are doing is we are ultimately careening towards the most desperate moment of our lives, whether it comes quick or it comes with cancer or it comes with whatever, where we will be desperate. And the only thing we will be able to do is say, I surrender this. I surrender this to a God who raises the dead. There was something that happened in Hannah in her long delay where her heart transformed in such a way of surrender that she could literally let go and give everything to God. So this little description of her in verse 18, I want to just read it for us again. The author tells us that Hannah is in the church. She's pouring out her heart. She looks like she's drunk in the eyes of Eli. Elkanah is off to the side saying, I've got a Nordstrom's card for you. You don't need to be so worried about this. And she just keeps pouring herself into prayer. And then something in her, some, that little incremental moment brought her to a transition point and a transformation point where the text tells us in verse 18 that she went away after praying, she ate something, and her face was no longer downcast. This is a very Hebrew way of saying her shoulders lifted, her chest puffed out, her chin went up, and she said, Something has changed in me. I still want a baby, but I'm not depressed about it. I still desire value in the culture. I still want to be able to say, Penina, hashtag babies. I, I want to be able to do that. I still want it, but it's not crushing me. It's not defining me. Something happened to her, and she didn't know if the baby was going to come or not. There was no voice from God that said in this moment, hey, you're going to have the baby for sure. What Hannah had done is she dealt with this sense of denial and she'd persevered through this long delay. And then she'd come to this place where she had peace before the desire was actually fulfilled. And the reason was somehow, someway in this long delay, this, this wrestling match with God, she came to know that she had been heard and she knew, regardless of how God answered her, she knew she was not forsaken. She knew she was not abandoned regardless of whether she got pregnant or not. And so God had been coming to her in the sense of denial. He was there saying no in some ways. And God had been coming to her in the delay as she was desperate. And what Hannah had done is she had developed this heart where all of her desperation was turned over in trust and surrender, and she let go. And we know this because of her unique vow. The story tells us that she vowed to give Samuel to the temple for the rest of his life if God would just give her a baby. Now, this vow, this was not her negotiating with God. If you give me a baby, I'll do this. We don't check box with God. We don't write up a contract with God and say, I'll do this, this, and this, and this. This isn't a sales pitch when we pray. This was not Hannah negotiating, and this is, this is what we need to understand about her vow. We know from the vow that this was Hannah's heart saying, I give you everything. I give up. I give up all to you, even my desire. Her vow was a Nazarite. She vowed her baby as a Nazarite. The Nazarite vow is this fascinating study throughout Torah, throughout the first five books of the Bible. It's found deep in the Hebrew history. It has all sorts of layers. It has its sources in the book of Numbers, actually. What this vow meant, the Nazarite vow meant for Samuel and the way that Hannah stated it to her God was that as soon as Samuel was weaned, he would become a temple servant for all of his life. In other words, the very very child that Hannah so desperately desired, she had said to God, if you give him to me, he's already all yours. Did you guys catch that? (laughs) If you give him to me, I will give him fully back to you. 
she had already given this, this desire to God completely. Because of this vow, Hannah would have her baby. She would hold this baby until the baby was weaned, till whatever age that is, I don't know anymore. Um, and then she would never see her child again, maybe once a year when she would make her pilgrimage to the temple. In other words, the very desire she wanted more than anything she would not have. She had given up her child. She had let God develop her desire to the point where whatever came, baby or no baby, it was all given to God. And somehow from that, she was no longer downcast. She knew that God had heard her prayers. And if the baby came, then that fulfilled desire was completely given back to God. And then she got pregnant. Then she got pregnant. Then it happened. But I, I'm convinced, and I can't wait to meet Hannah and ask her, if Samuel had never been born, would have your face remained lifted? And I believe it would have. I think it's what the text is teaching us. This woman found a joy and a definition and an ability to be so intimate with her God, despite denied desires. She's powerful. This abandoned, viewed by her society, cursed woman was so powerful. She is like such a discipler of my heart. When Samuel was born, her heart had been so transformed that she did indeed fulfill her vow. And her desire was granted. And what we need to see after this is that that baby was going to go on and change the course of the history of Israel. Through that long delay, God actually wanted this baby to be such a transformational piece in the history of his people that the desire and the delay had all intermingled for God to unfold his purposes in the world. This baby, Samuel, he was a massive turning point. So the book preceding this, just briefly, the book preceding this one is the book of Judges. And in Judges, we're told that everyone did what was right in their own eyes. There's this character in the book of Judges who's kind of a Samuel lookalike, and his name is Samson. Samson was known for his flowing locks, his beautiful hair, his chiseled chest, his six-pack abs. He, too, was born under a Nazarite vow. He was vowed to never shave his head. He was vowed to never drink wine, never touch a dead body, all of these things. But what happened with Samson was Samson turned out to be this impetuous, lust-filled man of rage and anger. Whatever desire Samson had in the moment, he went after, unchecked, unwilling for his God, Yahweh, to tell him no. And it was Samson's unchecked desire and lust for foreign women that did him in. And because Samson was so bent on his own desire being fulfilled, Samson's life actually ended completely blinded, literally blinded by his desire, and his life ended in suicide. I don't think our flannel graphs actually tell us the true story of Samson's end. The man committed suicide in the name of glory. Hannah and this little baby, though, Samuel was to be the new and better Nazarite, the new and better Nazarene. In the temple, he would grow up and he would become one of Israel's greatest prophets. And eventually he would be walking the nation through the failed monarchy of King Saul, another man whose desires went awry, and anointing King David, whose line would lead to Jesus. And so, as we get ready to come to communion tonight, we have to, we have to, be, we have to be obvious Are all of our desires going to be met? No. 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 Our desires are complicated, and God's perspective is beyond ours, and we don't get to negotiate with God. 
We don't get to check boxes and get him to be our genie in the bottle. But what we do get to do is press in more deeply and more earnestly to this place of desperate prayer that produces intimacy with him. We trust him. When he comes and it just feels like a full-on denial, we have to continually, sometimes second by second, turn ourselves over saying, I trust you, you're my father, and there's this intimacy that's built. When we're in a season of delay, we have to let him shape us. We have to believe that if the desire is not going away, then we will just keep cranking away at prayer until God returns because we can't do anything less than that. We will wrestle and fight and strive and cry and battle resignation and battle cynicism until the day we die because the desire won't go away. And until then, we just keep opening ourselves to his shaping of ourselves and his purpose in the world. And then if and when the fulfillment of that deep consequential desire occurs, we actually just find ourselves hopefully prayerfully transformed enough where that desire is just given fully back to God in thankfulness and glory to his name. And ultimately for us as Christians tonight, and Christians all across San Diego, every desire that we have will be fully met. In this life, will all desire be met? No. But in Christ Jesus, the beginnings of total and complete and everlasting fulfillment have begun for us tonight. That's what Advent is all about. Advent is about God becoming a man to say, I am going to initiate the beginning of the fulfillment of desires that you didn't even know you had. Desire for intimacy, desire for unity, desire for acceptance, desire for love, not based on anything that this world can give you, but only that which I can give you. And Jesus would say, I share these things with you so that my joy can be fulfilled in you. My satisfaction, Jesus was saying, is to be given to you. We don't have time to read it, but Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, it becomes the foundation and the model for the Virgin Mary's prayer in the Gospel of Luke when she discovers that she's pregnant with the Messiah. So through millennia of denials and delays, the deepest desires of humanity in that Virgin Mary were finally going to be met in the birth of baby Jesus, who was Emmanuel with us, God with us, Jesus who was called the Nazarene. He was from the city of Nazareth, but I'm telling you, these authors and what God did, there's too much connective tissue. Jesus the Nazarene, the vowed one. I'm just going to read to you the opening of the Magnificat, and then we're going to come to communion. Mary would sing, and this is the song of all saints in Advent, you guys. This is the song for us tonight, the crushing weight of In this life, there may be desires unmet, but ultimately our deepest desires are being fulfilled in Christ. We with Mary can sing, our souls glorify the Lord and our spirits rejoice in God our Savior. He has been mindful of our humble states as his servants. From now on, all generations will call us blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for us. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. So at the root of your and my desperation tonight is our need for a Savior, Jesus. And all human desire will ultimately and only be satisfied in our union with God, in our oneness with God through Jesus. The ark tonight, if you have said, Jesus, I want to apprentice myself to you. You're my master. 
You tell me no on things that I think you should tell me yes on. You tell me yes on things I didn't even know I wanted. The whole spectrum. You, you are my king. You are my savior. I, I will do whatever you say. I will obey you, your yeses and your noes, and I'll let you shape my desires. That individual, the arc of that life is actually moving and already begun the deepest desires being fulfilled as the kingdom is coming on earth as it is in heaven. In these unseen little moments at 5.30 in a little church in San Diego. (laughs) The kingdom is not this flashy, this is it. This is it. And so this Advent, I really would encourage us as as a forming community. You have to, we have to, even in our church plant, guys, things are going to get real for us in 2020. We're going to have to trust his process as he works through us. We're going to have to trust him continually over and over. We're all going to have desires that are intermingled with each other as a community. There's desires out there that he wants to bring into this community to intermingle with us. And he wants us to learn how to recognize him in the denials and in the delays. And then if and when the fulfillment of our, the things that we're praying for as a church collectively if and when those fulfillments come, which I am, I am with Hannah, drunk on prayer, like pouring myself out, and I don't care who sees or who says what about whatever I have to be put together, Mr. Pastor. There will be times where I'll fall on my face and cry because desperation, desperation for God to move, for God, for God to save souls, for God to transform your hearts, my heart, for us to be one with each other and with Jesus. But when those things begin to to bear fruit and come to fruition, with Hannah and with Mary, we can can sing the Magnificat over and over and over in the denials, in the delays, in the fulfillments. This mighty one, he has done great things for me. Great, great, great things for me. I'm going to pray for us, and Bree's going to lead us in a communion meditation tonight. Father, in even just a small community like this with 20, 30, 40 people, the desires in this room are so thick and full, and, and there can be a sense of desperation. There can be a sense of, of hurt in our culture, Lord, especially in the Christian culture. So many, so many go through life and they become embittered and enraged because they cannot reach that surrender point. I'm asking for us tonight, Holy Spirit, in this Advent season, as we see the nativity scenes, as we listen to the Christmas carols and hymns being sung in the mall, God, may we just attune our ear to your presence. And if there is a desire that is being denied or delayed, May we grant us, Holy Spirit, the strength and the, the, the hunger and the persistence to press into you. If you don't release us from these desires, if you don't release us from praying these types of prayers, then, Father, may we all the more earnestly pray with diligence and with persistence. May we become a people of stillness who receive our at-oneness with you. And I I just want to pray personally over our communion time tonight that there would be such a sense of at-oneness with you tonight. 
I want to pray that even if just for a, a glimmer of a moment, you would grant every dear soul in this room a moment in communion where they sense, oh, this is what it is to be so fully satisfied. This is what it is to be at rest. This is what it is to know that I am a son, a daughter, so beloved, so cherished, so cared for. Spirit, we open our souls to you tonight. We we open our ears to you. We're praying and asking you to, to show us where to go, what to do, who to be. Just move in our midst. In Jesus' name, amen.